Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Leora Bain. Leora is the president and founder of Glide, guiding life to independence through development and education, based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Welcome, Leora. Thank you so much for joining our podcast series. How are you doing today? Hi, Lynn. Thank you for having me. I am doing very well today. How are you? I'm also doing very well. It's a gorgeous day in central Pennsylvania, and I'm very happy to have have a chance today to talk to you about your background and the program that you're representing. So with that, why don't we go ahead and dive in. First, could you please give a little background on yourself and how it is that you personally came to be connected with the foster care system? Absolutely. Currently, I am an inpatient nursing supervisor at Spectrum Health Butterworth Hospital, and that's what I do by day. Well, I guess you could say by night as a night shift supervisor, but by day, I am working with a nonprofit organization that I myself have launched called Guiding Life to Independence Through Development and Education. How I became involved with that is that I was a child of the foster care system myself. I became involved in a foster care system when I was very, very young. I was about shortly after I was born, actually. And I was involved with that until I was about seven years old. I'd had more than 10 moves in that first seven years of my life, just going in and out of foster care and going back with my mom. My older sister and I were in the system together. And then when we exited the system, it wasn't at that time because we should have, to tell you the truth, In our last foster home placement, we had an attorney tell us that if we were ever placed in foster care again, that we would never return to our family, that we would either remain in the foster care system until we turned 18 or we would be adopted out. So at that time, my sister and I made a pact that no matter what happened in our dad's home, we would never tell anybody. So that just kind of continued the cycles of abuse until I was about 16 years old and Then I started to fall into the statistics, right? So like all the statistics about foster youth became my life story. That's one of the things that I talk about in Glide, actually, because there are so many self-fulfilling prophecies out there for youth that are in the foster care system or from the foster care system that you have to ask yourself, do the youth fall into these statistics because they have to, because something inside of them just drives them to do that? Or is it because this is what we're setting them up for? So, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy states that when somebody hears the same story enough times, basically that becomes their story, right? And so I was read the script for a very long time throughout my childhood. In school, I would say things like, I want to become a nurse when I grow up. And I was told by a school social worker that this was a very unlikely path because of my past and that she felt I set my standards too high and I needed to bring them down. When I became an adult and started to challenge that status quo, to that point from 16 years old, I had gotten married. I had a baby when I was 15, so I was pregnant and a mom at 15, got married at 16, divorced at 18, homeless at 19. So that's that falling into those statistics that I was talking about. And had kind of a turning point when I was 21 and started to turn my life around. 
I'd say that changing point that came for me was it was after my last suicide attempt and I had met a nurse and she kind of ripped the rug out from under me as far as other directed blame. She sat down with me and basically what she had said is she said, what's so bad about your life that you're sitting here with bandages around your wrist? And so at that point, I kind of lashed out at her and, you know, I told her, you don't know me. You don't know my story. You don't know what I've been through. And she says, okay, so tell me about it. So I did. I unfolded like my whole life to her. And then (laughs) she says to me, she says, so how old did you say you were when you moved out of your parents' house? I said, I was 16. And she says, okay. She says, everything that has happened to you from the point that you turned 16 to the moment you're sitting here right now is a direct result of your decisions. It took me back for a minute. And so I started throwing my excuses at her. You know, I didn't ask for this and I didn't want this. But she says, no, but it was still a direct result of your decisions. And so she kept on ripping this rug out from under me of this other directed blame, like I said. By the end of that conversation, I got mad at her. I went to my room. I cried it out for about three hours. And then I realized she was right. And the thing that she said to me at the end of that conversation that really hit me, just square between the eyes, she looked at me and she says, you know, she says, if you want to sit here and compare past, I could probably do that with you. But I'm not the one sitting here with bandages around my wrist, am I? And that was huge because she's a nurse, right? I wanted to be a nurse. Well, everybody said I couldn't be a nurse because of where I had come from. So this is the story. This is the script that was read to me. And that was the day that I realized I had been lied to because if she could do it, then I could do it too. And so that day was just this huge turning point. And from that moment on, I was very focused on what my goals were. And every single decision from that point on was, what can I do to reach my goals? That was when I was 21 and I started nursing school. At that point, like I said, I was homeless. So I had to work up from that point of homelessness and the bridges that I had burned and all those types of things and start creating a more positive path for myself. So I started nursing school when I was 28. So I got my bachelor's degree at Ferris State University. And each step between that day with that nurse and getting my bachelor's degree, there were so many things that had to confirm for me that I was capable of doing what I wanted to do. So I had become a nurse assistant and I graduated the program with a 95% overall challenging those statistics. And then I became a certified medical assistant and I graduated that program with honors. And I'm so each of these things are just a confirmation that I can do what I want to do. Then I graduated nursing school at Ferris State University, got my bachelor's degree with a 3.4 GPA. During that time, we were challenged to come up with an idea for a nonprofit organization that would address an issue within an at-risk population. I had already kind of dreamt up part of Glide many years ago, and then I put it up on a shelf because I said, I am in way over my head. I have no idea what I'm doing. And so I just put it away. And when that opportunity came up in nursing school to dream up this nonprofit organization, I pulled it out. I showed it to my group. I said, hey, what would you guys think of doing this? And they loved it. And so by the time I was done with my bachelor's degree, we had the start of the skeleton, I suppose you could say, of Glide and what Glide was to be. And my classmates, they said, you're going to do this, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, And I thought, well, you know, yeah, maybe one day. So then a couple years into practicing nursing, it became a real burden 
on me because I thought I was read this script my whole life and I w- had the opportunity to go to what's called Eagle Village. It's an organization local to me that is a group home for youth that are in the foster care system. And I spoke about my testimony there. And the thing that was just really rough was as I'm telling them the things that I experienced in the foster care system and some of my testimony and how I overcame that, I'm seeing these heads, these little heads in the crowd bobbing up and down. Like these things are still happening. These things are still going on. They're still being read this script. And so I said, I have a responsibility. Like I came out of this and I believe that there are other youth in the foster care system who can be successful, who want to be successful, but they don't know how to be successful and they need the resources. So they need access to resources, the same resources as non-fostered youth in order to be successful. And I said, that's what I want to do. And so I started my master's degree at Grand Canyon University and set a goal to have our doors open by the time I graduated. So that's a long story. Well, let me ask a couple of follow-up questions just about that before we get into Glide itself. You had mentioned that you had been lied to. I just wanted to think about that for a moment because I think it's more complicated than that because the people who are telling youth you can't do it or you shouldn't try. I think they believe it. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're intentionally lying. I think it's unfortunately a mindset. No, you're absolutely right. And so I think that's part of the advocacy that, that we as a community need to do is to try to help those who influence the youth to have the positive outcome mindset rather than the negative. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And that's one of the things that we set out to do as I go and I speak about Glide and what we do, I talk about that self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's things that people in those situations, I don't think that they're even thinking about it. They're not intending to be negative to youth and holding them back from what they're doing. And they're not thinking about the long-term consequences that their words might have on this population. As a matter of fact, when that social worker pulled me aside and said she thought I set my standards too high and I needed to bring them down a bit, she came to me with genuine concern because I had put on an assessment that I wanted to be a nurse when I grew up and she saw that and she genuinely has been told these statistics. She believed those statistics and she says, you know, I just, I don't want you to to be disappointed if you can't do this, you know, like, so she had this genuine concern about her. But unfortunately, that was something that did weigh on me, like, I wanted to be a nurse, but after being told for so long by so many people that this was not a reasonable or an attainable goal, I began to believe that. And so I didn't pursue that until I was, like I said, 20, 28. Well, I wasn't able to pursue that until I was 28. And I think if I had had that self-efficacy, you know, that belief that I was capable of doing that, that I was smart enough to do that which by the way, I was on the honor roll throughout my middle school and high school education. So there was no data that would be able to tell them that I couldn't do that other than what they had been told. Yeah. The other observation I wanted to make has to do with the idea of choices and how where we get to in life is because of the choices that we make. And I'm a firm believer in that. I think the trouble is in the foster care system so often Young people aren't allowed to make choices and to practice that skill. Thinking through outcomes and consequences and all of that when you're making choices, that's a skill. 
and they don't have the opportunity to learn how to make choices. Choices are made for them so often. And then when they age out, it's like, okay, go now make all your choices. (laughs) Good luck with that. And the young people just aren't prepared to make their own choices and understand how it will impact their lives for the good or the bad. And so I think that's something that we need to consider when we're thinking about how to work with these young people. Absolutely. And I honestly, I think, Lynn, that's what separates organizations that are run by those with lived experience, because we have that perspective. There are so many organizations out there that are such good intentioned organizations trying to help this population as they age out and they have no lived experience to be able to understand exactly where these youth have come from, what they've gone through, what they need. And so then there's this set of more rules that is placed on them, right? So I've seen in some of these transitional housing programs, for instance, there's so many rules. It's almost like they're still trying to kind of, you know, deal with this child population because they, even though they are transitioning to independence, they still don't truly have their independence. And I think that that could potentially be a barrier with Glide. One of our goals is not to have such, like, we want them to be safe. Yes. We want to help guide them in beginning to make these decisions and think through the consequences to their actions, you know, and stuff like that. So we don't want to set them up for failure, but we also want them to begin exercising that ability to make those decisions on their own. So it's designed around the idea of being much more of an independent living program where they have that ability to self-manage. All right. Well, I think that's just a perfect segue then. Why don't you explain, if you would please, the structure and the services you offer there at Glide so that we can understand what a young person experiences when they come to your program. Absolutely. So our program is nowhere near where we are envisioning it to be right now. And I just want to preface that. In our mind's eye, our long-term vision, we have a fully functioning transitional housing program. And In our state of Michigan, they don't like to hear that word transitional housing program anymore, actually. So that's kind of a barrier for us. But that's what we really want to look at is we want to look at that transitional time from exiting foster care to becoming an interdependent adult. We need to have this place where the youth can come. They can get out of that fight or flight because when you're turning 18 in the foster care system and you know that you're aging out, you know that you're probably not going to have a place to lay your head on your 18th birthday. You're not thinking about college. You're not thinking about what your future looks like because that's what non-fostered kids get to do. A foster youth that is going to be homeless on their 18th birthday, they can't afford to think about that. And so this gives them the opportunity to come and acknowledge they have a safe place to lay their head and that they're able to get out of that fight or flight and start thinking about what do I want to be when I when I grow up officially, right? And how can I get there? And so our job at Glide would be to guide the youth in finding out who they are and what they want to do, and then give them the resources to pursue that. So giving them that space at first with, of course, having it built into the program that they must still be working toward a goal, even if that goal is going to class and learning how to budget. Something small that doesn't take a lot of investment because when you're in that fight or flight stage, you might not be able to start thinking about those deep, deep things like, okay, am I going to go to college? Am I going to start work? Am I going to join the military? 
giving them that space for a little bit to learn how to budget. Let's make sure they have all of their vital documents. So their license or identification, their birth certificate, their immunization records, you know, these things that don't take a whole lot of mental or emotional space or headspace, right? And then as we work with them to have those basics down, we're talking to them about now it is the time to start thinking about what you want to be and we're here to help you pursue that next step. So if they want to go to college, then it's our job to connect them with the universities or colleges that have programs that they would be interested in going to. If they have absolutely no idea what their next step is, then we're going to do is to have an on-site employment readiness training program right there. So they have an opportunity to work in different areas. So like customer service, housekeeping, management, all these different things. And as they begin to do that, they might say, oh, I really like that or I don't really like that. But it gives them this opportunity to work, you know, on-site employment so that it's with trauma-informed staff so that they can begin to learn how to navigate employment, customer relations, all this type of stuff. And if they make a mistake, they're not going to be staring down a manager ready to fire them right away, right? It's going to be a learning experience. It's going to be that opportunity for us to reflect on that and say, okay, you know, what do we think happened here? And what do we think we could do better next time? Or, you know, something like that. Or they could say, you know what, this just is not for me. I want to try something else. Okay, cool. So it's really that guiding. We're not trying to force them into anything or anything like that. We're just helping guide them into figuring out what are their next steps and then getting them the resources to pursue those next steps. And then the final stage of the program, our hope would be that when they leave the program, they would have access to a housing voucher, and we will have them educated on what that means and how to utilize that going forward in life. And then throughout the program, once they become employed, a portion of their earnings would be going into, and when if they're employed at Glide, Obviously, so in our on-site employment readiness training program, they'd be earning income. And the goal is to have a portion of that income being saved so that they have money for first month's rent, down payment, a vehicle, furnishings, whatever it is that they need by the time they leave the program. So that's in our mind's eye. Right now, because we just launched and so we became an official organization in the state of Michigan in 2018. And we got our 501c3 status in July of 2019. And then COVID hit in 2020. (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah. So I don't know about anyone else, but we sure did not build a global pandemic into our business plan. No. (laughs) I'm thinking none of us did. (laughs) Yeah, no. No. So I'm not going to lie. It did slow us down a little bit, but we have a lot of fundraising to do. So we've basically uh, 2020, 2021, 2022, we're building our brand, getting our name out there, letting people know who we are, what we're doing, what we want to do. We're getting programming going and we're raising funds because when we're talking about having a transitional housing facility, with an on-site employment readiness training program and, of course, a life skills program. It's this comprehensive program. We need money, right, and a lot of it just to get started. We've kind of been stuck in this loop because being a new nonprofit organization, grants don't want to really even take a look at you until you're like five years old and you're doing something to help the population that you're claiming to to serve, right? 
And so we're in this loop of we need money to offer services, but we need to have services to get the money that we need to offer the services. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) So that's kind of what we've been dealing with. So right now we have what's called our Vital Documents Program that is live. It's a phenomenal program. So any youth that have experienced the foster care system, if they need any vital documents whatsoever, they can reach out to us and we have toolkits for learning how to navigate the system basically so that they can obtain their vital documents. And we're really located in Michigan and the population that we serve, we target the Kent County area. But if any youth was to reach out to us from the state of Michigan, we would have toolkits that would be valid because we don't know how other states work. You know what I mean? So I'm not sure we would be able to help with other states as far as helping somebody get their driver's license because the rules can be different from state to state. But right now we do have that type of stuff for Michigan. And that was a struggle. I'll just mention for me, when I came out of the foster care system, even though I didn't age out, right? (laughs) When I first started to pursue my nursing degree, I had to get my immunization record. And this is a story I use all the time to illustrate how important our vital documents program is. I went to the health department. That was the first place that I thought of to go to, to get a copy of my immunization record. And they had three different immunization records for me. And this is a direct result of being in the foster care system. As I mentioned, my older sister and I were in foster care together. So there was one immunization record that had her first name, my middle name, and her birthday. Another one that had my first name, her middle name, and my birthday. And another one that had, well, it was another mixture of like her name, my name, and one of our birthdays. So none of them were correct. I would not have been able to prove that either any of them were my immunization records, right? And so that was completely and wholly unhelpful to me. So at that time, I had had access to resources and assistance from others in my life, you know, a supportive network, which not all of our youth have access to. They don't have access to a supportive network. But because I did, I was able to know that I needed to go to my doctor's office and get a titer. But insurance doesn't pay for a titer. So I had to be able to pay for that out of pocket. Basically, what our vital documents program would do for youth in that situation is we would, number one, help them to navigate the system to find out what they needed to do to be able to go and get whatever vital documents they needed. So their ID, which is required to be able to get an apartment, right? Their social security card also required. So in order to get a job, or housing, you need to have your driver's license, your social security card, and your birth certificate. And whatever cost is associated with that, we can cover. So that's a little bit about how our vital documents program works. And it's something that we can do without millions of dollars and without a physical location. So it's kind of like this is our starting point of offering services, but our end point is so much bigger. That's great. I mean, that's something that I'm seeing a little more of recently in the last couple of years. I've seen a little more awareness about how hard it is for young people coming out of foster care to get their vital documents. And I know that there are some programs or nonprofits popping up here and there. But you're saying that you can help any youth no matter where they live? Well, some of our vital documents toolkits are pretty specific to the state of Michigan, like I said. So, like with getting their driver's license. There are different requirements, driver's license or state ID. There are different requirements per state of what they need to like come with. For instance, when my little sister, so my stepsister, when she turned 18 in the state of Michigan, she did not have a driver's license, nor did she have a state ID. 
and she was homeless at that point. So I was trying to help her to navigate that system. And we went to the Secretary of State's office in Michigan. And everything that the state of Michigan requires for an individual to have in order to get their driver's license is very much a barrier for youth here. But it's not so much in other states. So what ended up happening at that time is I was not able to help her get her driver's license or her state ID. The state that she was born in, she couldn't get it. She ended up moving to Georgia and she was able to get a state ID in Georgia. So Georgia's requirements were much less astringent than Michigan. So we could help with things that were federal, but for the most part, our services are really restricted to Michigan. Okay. There are a couple of things I wanted to follow up on. Going back to when you were first explaining it, you used the term interdependent adult. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to come back around to that. I've heard that term used in one other podcast. Could you explain what you mean by interdependent adult and why you use that instead of independent adult? Absolutely. I'm so glad that you asked. So (laughs) (laughs) when I was first pursuing Glide, I actually had the opportunity to sit down with some leaders of an organization in the Ann Arbor area. It's called Reach and Traverse Place. I took my idea to the executive director of Reach and Traverse Place and sat down with him, told him about my idea, just to run it by somebody who was already working in the field, you know, and I expected to hear, this isn't going to work. Your idea is way too big. You need to scale it down a bit. You're trying to recreate the wheel, stop it. And what I heard was, and why don't you have a board yet? When are you doing this? But during that visit, I was able to meet some of the other people who work with Reach and Traverse Place and talk to them about Glide, you know, what I was envisioning for Glide. And one of them said to me, he says, can I just ask you to do something for me? And I was like, yeah, what? Can I ask you to stop using that term independence, that you're going to help get these youth to independence? He says, can you start using the term interdependence? And I was like, well, tell me more about that, right? And so I started using the term interdependence after this conversation with this individual, because basically what he said is when we try to tell youth that we are going to help them transition from foster care to independence, we're really setting them up for failure. And I said, okay, help me understand. He says, when you finally were able to get out of homelessness and pursue your nursing career and all this other kind of stuff, he said, did you do that by yourself? Literally, like independently with no other assistance, no other supports in your life. Did you do that? And I said, no. And he says, cool. He says, so you were able to use like other resources and you had other supports in your life, that sort of thing. I said, yeah. And he says, well, that's interdependence. He says, so by using this term independence, you know, we're just continuing to put this message out to the youth that they are alone, that they have to do this on their own and that they can't be interdependent. And he says, when really they need a system of support, they need to learn how to navigate the system. They need to learn how to utilize the public supports that have been put in place for them to be able to use as like a stepping stone like I did, for instance. Throughout this journey, I have utilized public assistance. So I've utilized, I had a voucher, a housing voucher for a good long time that was insanely helpful. Income-based housing I utilized. I had Medicaid, food stamps. You know, I utilized this systems that were in place, but I utilized them as a stepping stone in getting my nursing degree in the last two semesters of my nursing degree. So like in the last year of gaining my nursing degree, I ran out of money. I had no more funding. I had no more federal funds available, no more scholarships, no more grants, no more student loans. I was maxed out of everything. And so I went to Michigan Works 
and I talked to them about their WIOWO program. I was able to be enrolled into that because I had less than a year left. And Michigan Works came alongside of me and they paid for my last two semesters of nursing school. They paid for my books. They helped me fix my car. They paid for my tuition. (laughs) So this is one of those examples of how I was able to utilize the public assistance programming to get to where I needed to be and wanted to be, you know, to, to reach my goals. And so I was interdependent. That's how I've come to use that term. And, and that's how I understand that term is, is we're teaching youth how to be interdependent. Yeah, I, I'm guessing it's gaining some traction because, like I said, you're the second person I've interviewed. So if, if I've interviewed two individuals, then many, many more are using that term, I'm sure. So I think that's very interesting. I'll have to consider using yeah. that term as well. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know that it's so common that people would get it right away. Exactly. That's the challenge. Exactly. And it brings up those questions in that conversation. It's a good conversational piece. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I also wanted to go back to the Catch-22 that you were in or are in as a new organization, because I can totally relate to that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) New nonprofits need money to provide services, but they need services to get the money, right? Yes. (laughs) So you have this Catch-22. These ideas were bouncing around my head of, you know, what could be a solution for that for new nonprofits in this area? Like I'm thinking specifically for young people aging out of foster care, just to narrow the conversation a little bit. I mean, could there be an incubator for nonprofits who could partner with each other to provide the wraparound holistic services that a young person would need? And under the umbrella, they would be able to access some funds that would enable them to get the services started to be able to build that track record to be able to then eventually launch on their own to get grants on their own. So I don't know if an incubator is the right answer, but I'm just throwing that out there just as maybe a solution to that problem. Oh, yeah. And that is something that probably would take partnership, you know, among many different organizations, which I would love to see. I would absolutely love to see that. In my area, in the area of Kent County, I have noticed a little bit of competitiveness, right? Oh, yes. Because Mm -hmm. we're all competing for the same grants when you think about it. Right. And so I really feel like we need to get out of this mindset that we're competing for the same grants or we're competing we are never going to have enough programs. That's the part for me that is like heart-wrenching. I do not believe that we are ever going to get to a point. I wish, I hope, I hope we get to a point where I can no longer have a job with Glide or I can no longer have an organization serving this population because we fix the problem, right? Right. But I'm not convinced that there is ever going to be enough programming. For instance, in Kent County right now, we have literally hundreds of programs that are serving this population, not just this population, but other, you know, homeless populations as well. As far as homeless shelters are concerned, we have the capacity to be able to have hundreds of homeless individuals served. But with all of those programs currently in place, we still have an extraordinary amount of homeless youth aged 18 to 26 sleeping on the street on any given night. One of the resources, and I've recently been challenged on this, and so I don't know what the actual numbers are, but Mel Trotter is a homeless organization in Kent County that has been, they've been serving the homeless population for many, many years. I want to say like 
something like 40, 50 years, like a long time, right? And so on their website, what they say is that there are still over 200 youth who are sleeping on the streets on any given night in Kent County. So that's a big number. The COC asked me where I had gotten that number. So they don't believe that it's that high. I don't know what the actual number is, but that's my disclaimer is, is that's where I got the information. It's on a website, a very well-known large organization in the Kent County area. So we're looking at up to at least 200 individuals that are still sleeping on the street on any given night between the age of 18 and 26 with all of the current programs that are in place. We have to get out of this mindset that we're competing with each other. We're not. We're complementing each other. Yeah. And if you think about it, if you create networks of partnerships, yeah. you're less likely to have young people falling through the cracks, if you will, of that net, right? Right. I'm really blending <laughs> <laughs> these things together. But, you know, that's the idea is that by working together, you provide a better like I said, a better network, yes. a better overall overarching set of services for the individuals who need it. Absolutely. And by working together, we can also make sure that we're not duplicating services. Exactly. Utilizing exactly. each other and what we bring to the table individually and elevating each other's programs. So we might offer something that another program doesn't offer. Or like, for instance, we have Covenant House Ministries in Grand Rapids. I think they have a capacity for 50 youth in their program. And so we can alleviate. A lot of times Covenant House Ministries has a waiting list for the youth that are coming in the program. Why not partner with us so that we can take the youth that have aged out of the foster care system because our population that we serve is so specific. There are other youth who are homeless who did not age out. For instance, Lynn, if I was a youth trying to get into the GLIDE program, I would not qualify for my own program that I'm designing because I didn't age out. Right. But I would qualify for Covenant House Ministries or AYA, other programs that are in the area. So Glide could help to alleviate the congestion of youth that are trying to get into that program by focusing on this very specific population. And then when we get youth that are coming to us that are homeless or at risk of experiencing homelessness, but they did not age out of the foster care system, then guess what we get to go do? We get to send them to AYA or Covenant House Ministries. We get to send them on to that next, that next organization that can help them that they do qualify for. So we complement each other. And if we all work together on this, this is one of the things that I love about your podcasts, actually, when you did the podcast with comfort cases. Mm-hmm you know, with Rob Shear. Yep. All I heard him talk about and it inspired me so much. It sent goosebumps all up and down my body. I said, I have to talk to this man <laughs> because he's talking about partnering together and helping each other and how we cannot do this alone. And I want to echo that for everybody that is listening. We cannot do this alone. We cannot compete against each other. Yes, we might be competing for the same grants, but we have to get out of this mindset that we are competitors. We are partners, and by partnering together, we could get so much more accomplished for this population. Yep, I agree completely. It's a matter of, I think, maybe just somebody needs to come up with the structure of how to how to bring organizations into that partnership. Yes. You know, is there a way to help initiate and facilitate that for organizations? Because I think if we leave it up to the organizations, it might happen eventually here and there, but I think we need something a little more formal and structured to make it happen on a, a larger scale. Yes. We need a hub. Yeah. A hub. A hub. That's what we need. Yeah. 
Well, I will throw out there, if you don't mind me putting out a plug, Aging Out Institute is going to be launching an online community for organizations and individuals who work with young people aging out of foster care. It's in the process of being designed right now. And we're going to have some early adopters come in and help populate the conversations with questions, answers, and so forth. We will be launching it later this year. And that will be, I'm not saying that's the hub by any means, but at least it's maybe a starting point for people to come together and troubleshoot and solve problems. Amazing. That sounds amazing. I'm excited to see where you go with that. Thank you. I'm excited too. (laughs) I can't wait. You know, this design of it is very exciting, but I can't wait to get it started. (laughs) Oh, that's exciting. (laughs) All right. Well, I know that we're at the top of the hour, so I appreciate that you have had some time to share with us your vision for Glide and what it is that you offer right now. What's the time frame for where you are now to the vision that you have of the transitional housing? Do you have an idea in your strategic plan of how long you will take to get there? I got to tell you, Lynn, the last two years have really humbled me. Well, remember when I started this, I said I wanted to have our doors open by the time I graduated with my master's degree. Well, that happened in 2019. I graduated with my master's degree and our doors are still not technically or officially open. Well, that's okay. My mother always used to say, whatever you do, it's going to take longer and cost more than you think. Oh my goodness. Your mother was so right. So So ideally, I would like to see us getting to that next level within the next year. In our minds, our original plan was to basically leverage the multi-billion dollar hospitality industry by purchasing a fully functioning and active hotel, like hotel, restaurant, conference center. And I don't worry about putting this idea out there because, again, I just don't think we're ever going to have enough organizations to help. So if somebody else has $3 million to get this started or more in their area, I'd love to share with them my knowledge and research and how I came to this idea. But when you think of everything that it takes to run a hotel, restaurant, conference center, there's so many different jobs, on-site employment readiness training program, so many different jobs that a youth could have throughout that. You have cook, chef, line cook, hostess, host, waiters, waitresses, bartenders, Of course, we would be cutting out the alcohol piece of it, however, because of the population. (laughs) (laughs) And so all of that. But you have event planners, cake decorators, caterers, customer service staff, like front desk customer service staff, housekeeping, landscaping, security. Everything would be open to the youth from the ground up, even following the executives, just whatever they feel they want to gain knowledge or experience in is open to them to gain that and figure out what their next steps in life are. There's so many opportunities with that. And so basically the idea is to section off a piece of that hotel or motel with the transitional housing program. So the section it off, make it private and safe for the youth that are in the program and then have the fully functioning hotel, restaurant, conference center as an on-site employment readiness training program. And then also there would be a life skills program involved with it as well, where they learn how to navigate the things that are going to come up in life. You know, I'm learning how to cook, clean, budget, learning how to navigate stressors. So what happens when you get triggered and how do you deal with that and how do you overcome that and having that supportive community around you of people who are in the process of overcoming it or people who have overcome it. All of this is a part of our bigger picture, but it takes so much money. 
so we've kind of scaled back on that a bit and started thinking about, okay, well, what can we do to get our program going in a shorter period of time because we need less money because we're not coming upon three plus million dollars that we need to purchase that all that whole big picture. Really, that's what we need. We need $3 million. If there's anyone out there looking to invest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you never know who listens. But, you know, if you wanted to take steps to get there, there absolutely are models out there of the cafe. Yeah. Right. Of where you have the monkey and the elephant. You've got the crackpot coffee shop. They're both in Pennsylvania. You've got La La Land Kind Cafe in Texas. There are models out there of a smaller version of that if you wanted to as a stepping stone. Yeah. And so this is what's exciting. So kind of where we're going with this is if you can envision this with me, I don't know, have you seen container buildings and container businesses? I've heard of them. Okay. Google it because the pictures, there's so many things you can do with these container buildings. And what's appealing to me about this is we can start with one. So one container. We have a contractor that is willing to work with us to teach volunteers how to build a container into a livable space or a space that can earn income. So like a little cafe, right? So there are container businesses. You've got Chick-fil-A's that are running out of containers. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. And they can be so chic and elegant. They can be retro. There's so many different things you can do with these. And we can build out and up and All we need to do is start with one. So we need the property and sewage and electricity and all that stuff hooked up to it. And then we need one container. And I'm positive that we could partner with other larger organizations that have been known to donate to such things like this before. So like Lowe's, Menards to get our materials reach out to contractors. Do you know how many contractors just have extra materials laying around, you know, hardwood flooring, paneling, paint, drywall? And they're not using it. It's sitting in a garage or a storage place somewhere waiting for that next job or whatever. You know, they might be willing to donate some of that for tax deduction. So that is kind of where we're starting to take it is we're thinking about making those smaller steps toward, okay, well, if we can get a container, then we can house one or two youth. And we get another container and we can start that on-site employment readiness training, which also... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to mention that also works (laughs) as a funding to come back. And so all of the proceeds coming from that on-site employment readiness training program would be going back into the nonprofit rather than padding the pockets of an executive somewhere. I know I've certainly heard of the tiny homes. So it sounds like maybe another version of the tiny home, but it's also tiny business. Yeah. Yes. I love it. I love it too. And COVID has brought so many things to us, a, a terrible, terrible things. Now, mind you, I'm a nurse, right? So I have dealt with the awful side of COVID, but there are other things that it's kind of brought to us, different ways of thinking about things and doing things like the outside dining type plans. So you don't have to have a huge restaurant in order to have a successful organization that is serving, you know, food or, you know, services to the community, you can have those kind of outside igloo ideas, which I think has been one of the good things that came out of this. My husband and I went out on a a date in one of those igloos in the wintertime in Michigan, and we had a wonderful time. It was really neat. I have not experienced one of those, but I've seen them. So I know what you're talking about. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, well, that's really that's really interesting. Now, if you had somebody who wanted to donate, oh, I don't know, $3 million or maybe right? less, 
how would they do that? Is there a website they could go to or an email they should reach out to? Absolutely. We have a fully functioning website. We also have a Venmo, but our website is glidehome.org. And that's just G-L-I-D-E home, H-O-M-E dot org. Okay. So, and there's a link on there for donating? Yes. Right up at the upper right-hand corner, there's a link that says donate. Okay. So you can click to donate. Okay. Thanks. Are you looking for any volunteers or, you know, people who you're able to benchmark with maybe? Is there any other kind of resources that you would like to connect with? Absolutely. Let me tell you, I absolutely love Glide. I'm always, always going to be a part of it. But when it comes (laughs) down to it, I'm not sure that I am the most qualified individual to run it once we get to that point. If there's anyone out there who is listening and has lived experience in the foster care system and or homelessness and has come out of that and say you have a social work degree or a social work background, that I think would be a person much more qualified to take us to the next level. We need board members, specifically those who have experience in writing for grants. We don't have any board members that have that experience. And so we're kind of flying by night in that. So that's definitely a barrier that is holding us back to getting to that next level. We need somebody who has experience in that and is willing to help us out. If anybody has experience writing for grants, gaining that funding, marketing, all those things, we could really use people like that on the boards. People who have experience with the for-profit side of things to help guide us as we move on to that next level. Volunteers are going to be very important as we get to building the site, right? So building those container buildings and then working with the youth. So volunteers can be very helpful with that. We have a lot of needs. So if you go to our website and you click on get involved and then fill out the contact sheet there, then we can get a hold of you and find out if there's any way that you want to be involved, then we can get a hold of you and talk and decide what that looks like. Okay. If that makes sense. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. We do have a lot of needs and especially in that area, like I said, of people that have social work background, grant writing, marketing, fundraising, all of those things. All right. Well, if anybody listening has that kind of background or expertise and you'd be interested in helping Glide move forward to their goals, then please reach out to them on their website. I think that we're going to have to wrap things up. Leora, I really appreciate the time that you've taken today to share this information with us about yourself, your own background, about Glide and where you're hoping to take the organization. I wish you all the best as you move forward and we'll keep an eye out. I'd like to continue tracking how things go and maybe you can participate in our online community when we get that launched. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Lynn, for doing what you do, getting the word out there about all these amazing organizations that are helping with this population and the challenges that they face. I just so much appreciate you. Oh, thank you. And you're very welcome. We're happy to do it. I myself have that lived experience. I aged out from foster care many moons ago. And so it's near and dear to my own heart. And so I certainly, like you were saying, I appreciate that 
people who have that kind of background who want to get back involved with the youth and to try to help them. I appreciate that. So I appreciate you as well. And so with that, I'm going to have to close us down for the day. For those of you who have listened to the podcast to the end, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. You can find them on agingoutinstitute.org and just click the podcast link. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.